Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. On today, I have the great honor of bringing you a friend and an amazing inspiration. Her name is Sarah Evans. She is a multi-platinum best-selling musician. She has sold more than 7 million albums. She's got five number one hits. One of my favorites is Born to Fly. You're going to hear about that success, but I think far more than that, leaders, family, friends, you're going to hear an ordinary story of growing up, of adversity, of tragedy, of bouncing forward. She endured her own parents' divorce, and then she went through a very, very, very painful one herself. She learned lessons in both. She's got an amazing story to share. You're going to learn about her faith. You're going to learn about her parenting style. You're going to learn about her climb to fame. You're going to learn about some of the mistakes she made, some of the lessons she learned, and ultimately what it means for you. You're going to hear some awesome music. You're going to hear an amazing story. And you're going to be reminded as you listen to Sarah Evans' story today, my friends, that the best of your story, and I'm looking at you right now, yes, indeed, the best of your story remains in front of you. It's a great one. You're going to love it. So buckle up, grab your journal, get ready to open up your heart, take some notes, and get ready because you were born to fly. So my friends, welcome with me, my friend, and now yours. Her name is Sarah Evans. Sarah, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sarah, I wish we were recording for the last uh, 45 minutes because I think the best of our content is already behind us. I, I feel like right now I'm having coffee with a friend. So I'm really, really glad you're taking some time from a busy schedule to uh, spend some of your day with us. Well, me too. And I'm so just amazed at your story. And I feel like, you know, even what happened to me, um, getting hit by a car is like, I shouldn't even talk about it compared to what you've <laughs> been through. Well, for uh, the three listeners who somehow did not hear my introduction or do not yet know the name Sarah Evans, the music, the book, the work that you're doing, one of the reasons I brought you on our show is because of how, and I mean this as high praise, how ordinary you come across. 
you, you. you don't come across with your hair, hair always blown in the breeze. The makeup's not always on. You're not always singing when you meet people on the sidelines of life. <laughs> so when you meet someone for the first time and they're like, Sarah, hi, I'm John. What do you do? When someone says, Sarah, what do you do? How do you respond? Um, yeah. So like if I meet somebody on an airplane and they say, what do you do? Or are you traveling for business or pleasure? And I'm almost always traveling, you know, to go do a show somewhere. Um, I think it depends on what mood I'm in because if I say, well, I'm a recording artist. <clears throat> oh, really? And then, you know, that just opens up, <laughs> you know, a can of worms. And then they say, well, would I know your music and who are you? And, and then it feels, uh, kind of stupid to say, well, I'm Sarah Evans. I'm a country singer. And then I'm also worried that people around us will hear me and, <clears throat> um, then I won't be anonymous anymore. But typically, you know, I, my career is, is I'm a singer, but if you ask me, you know, who are you, Sarah Evans, or what do you do? I would first and foremost say that I'm a mom. And then secondly, I would say I'm a you know, a daughter and a sister and a wife and a friend. Mm. You know, Sarah, when we record guests, I'm always looking for like the, the parts of the conversation where it's worthy of taking notes. And when you have someone whose trophy case, if they choose, is packed with awards, packed, 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 packed. And yet you're leading in with, uh, oh man, I'm a daughter, I'm a mom. I'm so proud of being a mom. I got three little kids and through a marriage, I got four extra bonus babies. I'm a mom of seven now and I'm a daughter and I'm a friend. I'm all these other titles before I'm a recording artist, before I'm a best-selling author. I, I think that's so impressive. And I, I wonder if it's also in part because of the roots from which you grew. You know, you and I were talking before we recorded. I'm a Missouri guy myself. You are as well. You grew up Central Missouri. Is it uh, Boonsville? Just outside of Boonsville in a New Franklin? Yeah, New Franklin. Um, yeah, right, right next door to Boonville. And then the next place that's close to us is Columbia. And my right. granny and papa lived in Columbia, so I spent so much time there. So, and to answer your question, absolutely. I mean, I'm the third oldest of seven kids, and I grew up. Um, on a farm and everybody farmed in New Franklin. Um, nobody had money, but we had an idyllic childhood. And, um, <clears throat> and my parents' um, childhoods were even more idyllic than ours, you know? And I think especially right now in 2020 and where the world is and where this country is, I long and yearn for old days for simple days for days before the iphone um you know just that simple life because we like you said you you talked about how you know your parents really have don't have a lot but they have joy um i grew up full of joy and imagination and happiness and our life was so simple you know we had three channels we weren't looking at a stupid box you know that we're holding all day long um, and when you farm, it's a family business. So you do it together as a family. We were tobacco farmers and it's one of the hardest crops to raise. And we had to work our fingers to the bone, get up at 6.30, even on summer mornings and go pull plants. And then you have to set tobacco in the evenings. And when you do that with your siblings and your parents, you, you all have a common goal of, you know, um, what what is that crop going to bring this season and, and how will Christmas be this year based on that? 
And then we also had livestock. So um, to me, I feel so much, you know, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of that family. I'm a part of a group of people. Um, and I think family is the most important thing in the world besides our relationship with God. And I'm definitely raising my children the same way. We're a clan. Um, you know, if you hurt one of us, you hurt all of us. And if you love one of us, you love all of us. And um, I just think that's so important. And it's definitely helped me navigate through this crazy career. Mm. Let's talk about the journey toward that crazy career. I've followed you, of course, for 20 years, like every, everybody else who listens to country music. I did not know, though, that you started not at you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, but you, you started singing at age four. I was not composing sentences until age five, Sarah. You're already performing at four. Talk about that. I know. It's so weird. You know, it just was not, it didn't seem weird at all when we were doing it. But I guess when I was around four years old, you know, my mom put my two older brothers on guitar lessons. Both my parents are music lovers. Both my parents can sing. Um, but they just never did it themselves. My parents got married right out of high school. You know, and again, we led a very simple life. So it shocks me when I look back on it and I think, what pushed my mom to push us yeah, to yeah. do music? What was that? Because she obviously had to have been so busy and I was her third child and she was only 24 when I was born. So imagine being 24 and having three kids and a husband and having the, the drive and the gumption to buy music equipment and figure out how to book us and you know, find musicians. Um, I remember her asking our guitar teacher, um, do you know any musicians that would back my kids? And I, I mean, my mom is practically Amish, you know, she's just a farmer and, but she's also brilliant. She's the smartest person I've ever known and the hardest working person I've ever known. And she's absolutely hilarious too. Um, but I'm so grateful that she did that because when I moved to Nashville at 19, I was ready. I was prepared. I'd already been a local celebrity around Missouri and I'd already, you know, seen, seen it all. I mean, at six years old, I was singing in bars, watching <laughs> drunk people two-step to me singing. Crazy. Crazy. So that's, that's your experience at six, which I guess in some regards begins maturing you and preparing you for what's gonna happen at age eight. You whispered about it a moment ago. I'd like you to roar about it right now, but what, you had a life-changing experience at age eight. Yeah, when I was eight years old, I got hit by a car. Um, we lived out in the country on Highway 87, and it's this windy, hilly country road, and our driveway was set at the bottom of two hills. And so, you know, it was like dangerous every time you pulled out of that driveway. And I had a motorcycle, a Yamaha 80 that I rode all the time, you know, with my brothers, they each had motorcycles too. Um, and around this time I had been, uh, playing, playing pretend like with my dolls and, um, setting up my parents' bedroom to like be my little house. And I would put on the Emmylou Harris record and, um, play house. And I just remember, putting on this, this, what I thought was a cute little outfit. Um, and I was going to get on my bike and go down to the end of the driveway and get the mail. Because if I'm pretending to be a mom, you know, that's one of my jobs. I got to get the mail and bring it in. And 
I wasn't allowed to do that, of course. So I snuck down and my mom and my brother were working on a tractor that had broken down. And I remember hearing a car faintly to my left, but I thought I had time to make it. And she was going 75 miles an hour and just absolutely caught me in dead in the middle of the road, hit me on the left side. Um, so I flew up and my head hit the, the hood of the car or the roof of the car and put a huge dent in the car where my head hit. And then she slammed on her brakes and threw me about 80 feet in the air and both my legs and both my arms were broken. I was, had a severe concussion. I was unconscious for three days and you know, they turned around and she had her son with her and he got out of the car and started running. Mm. And I'm emotional today. I keep almost be. crying. And, um, you know, just yelling that they had hit me. So I spent six weeks in the hospital and had, you know, multiple surgeries on my legs and my left leg was almost severed in two. So, you know, they really had to work a lot to get that leg back and healing in the proper way. So yeah, that was, um, an unbelievable experience, but it was also the first time that I really understood God and his protection. You know, Sarah, we could go in a million different directions from talking about physical ailments you have today as a result of this, how it changed you, how it changed your faith. I, I think what I'd like to learn about is, is as a little girl, you wake up three days, you've been unconscious, you know, biblically there's power in that. You wake up three days later, you're in intense pain. You almost lose a leg. You've got broken arms, broken legs, a terrible concussion. When you were struggling as a little girl, because uh, I think this is something we can all relate to with COVID-19 and with some of us relationally struggling or financially struggling right now, mm -hmm. what was getting you through those difficult days as a little girl? You're eight years old. Eventually mom and dad leave the hospital room. You're by yourself. What gets you through those long sad, painful nights? Yeah, there were some, um, I'm so emotional today. It's because of you. It's because you started with this <laughs> amazing story. Um, yeah, it, there were some really lonely days that I spent in the hospital because like I said, you know, my mom was only 32. Um, and by this time they had five kids and, uh, you know, trying to, run the farm and my dad had a job um and the hospital was about 45 minutes away from our farm and it was just incredibly difficult on everybody but you know my granny and papa came to see me oh, god this is one of those interviews where i can't stop crying um every day every single day my granny brought me fried chicken and you know, I just got through it. I think of an eight-year-old today in this day and time, they would never, ever be able to handle it in the same way that I did because we were just brought up to be strong and tough and resilient. And, you know, my parents were not emotional people. So everything was very like, you know, we just deal with it and move on. And, um, you know, there are good good things to that and bad things to that. One of the bad things was that I, I think I was, I should have probably gone to therapy or something after the accident because I was traumatized and not only traumatized by the pain, but 
you know, traumatized just by like the whole experience of having to go under anesthesia so many times and have all those surgeries like you can totally relate to. And also just being alone mm -hmm. in the hospital and being scared and wanting my mom. If we're not careful, we're going to derail the train and you and I are both going to be in tears and the audience is going to be what's happening today on the Live Inspired podcast. <laughs> but for anyone who's honest about it, whether they got burned or they got hit by a car going 75 and thrown 85 feet, we all have that experience from our childhood of feeling completely isolated, like we're doing this thing by ourselves for a moment and uh, can we make it? And I think yeah. as we age... We, you know, when I was little, I used to think at some point I'm going to grow up. And now that I'm in my mid forties, I wonder, God, I wonder when that's going to happen. I wonder right. when I'll finally make it and be fully developed as a human being. And when I'm really, <laughs> it when may not happen this side of eternity. Yeah. So I think the emotion you're feeling is not only for what you felt at eight, but what you're feeling today in your late forties. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, writing this book. So obviously I've told all these stories a million times, right? I've told about getting hit by a car a million times. There's something different now though about having written this book and now doing all these interviews. I'm astonished that people, you know, care. I mean, they care about me and that my life is interesting to them, but I'm also astonished at how much I've really been through and I'm only in my forties also. And, you know, there's still so much to come and so much that I want to accomplish and so much that I have to look forward to. Um, and sadly, you know, I feel like with the way the world is right now, it seems like we don't have anything to look forward to. Um, that's when I really, really turn to God because I have asked God recently, like, where are you? Um, it seems that he's hidden his face from us for a minute. And it's kind of like in Romans where it talks about, you know, God gave them over to their depravity and just let them, let them go. And it's, it's kind of, um, feels like that right now. Although I know for a fact that God will never leave us or forsake us. And I, I began to realize that when I was in the hospital and everybody who came to visit me would mention that like, you're, you're, you're precious to God and God saved your life and you're so lucky. Um, God was really looking out for you. So all the times that people said that to me, I believed it and I still believe it to this day. So what, what I'm hoping as you share that, cause we're gonna, we're gonna speed the tape up just a little bit as that is every one of our listeners is hearing your miracle story. And that is what it is. You should not have survived that. Is mm -hmm. they also recognize that that same miracle of, of life is true for them as well. Like none of us should be here. The, the fact that mom and dad came together at the very moment that they did to lead to your life yeah. is nothing short of a shocking, massive, cosmic miracle. <laughs> you know, truly. I mean, we are the most yeah. blessed people, and too frequently, we just forget it. So I'm, I'm grateful, Sarah, you're reminding us that you're a walking miracle, and so are we. I, I could spend three podcasts talking about your dad, talking about your mom, talking about some challenges that you went through growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, I'll save that for our next conversation, or I'll just strongly encourage people to check out the book, Born to Fly, because it's, it's in there, and it's worth reading about. Music, though. It's one of the reasons why you and I are connected today. When did you realize, because it probably was not at four or at six when you're in a bar at one o'clock singing to these people doing the two-step, when did you realize, man, I might have something that would work in Nashville and beyond? Um, I knew it from the very beginning. I've always known it my whole life. And I don't have a memory of 
not being a singer. It almost feels like I came out of the womb and I started singing and it's, it's the thing that I'm the most confident about. Um, more than anything is that I can sing, that I'm a great singer, that I'm a great vocalist. And I don't mean that to sound braggy. It just is so natural to me to sing. And it's, it's my greatest joy, you know, besides being a parent. Um, so our whole family, you know, it sort of like hasn't been just my career. It was my family, you know, because we were all in it and we were all rooting for me. Yeah. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> I think I need to go take a nap and stop. While you, uh, while you grab a sip of wine or coffee <laughs> or uh, whatever else you need. One of the things that surprised me most in reading your book was the family element of the journey forward, not only your siblings and your parents to a regard to a, to a, a portion, your little ones. I had no idea that you were globe trotting doing 300 shows a year and radio interviews and everything else, the, the, the craziness that allows the success to take with yeah. children in hand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, nothing will make me get more defensive than if people say, you know, I, I don't know how you do it. Um, you know, you're away from your kids all the time. And I just always am so defensive about that because I took them with me everywhere. I literally killed myself to, you know, make sure that the kids could be there. And so it's not like I was sleeping all day and recovering from a, you know, really difficult show the night before I was getting up. And of course I had a nanny with me, but you know, still when you're the mom and you're with your kids, they want you, they don't want the nanny. Um, and I remember, you know, when the kids started school and me wanting them to have an experience of normal childhood, Um, that's when it got complicated because if they played sports, you know, I would have to be way ahead of, and, and, you know, be super organized to make sure that I didn't book a show on a day that they had a game. Um, and in particular, one, one thing that, you know, has been a really hard, uh, it was a really hard time in my career was when my son Avery started playing football And so his junior year and his senior year, I blocked every Friday night during football season, meaning I would not take any shows. Well, that's a a big loss of money, you know, for the people that work for me. Um, And, you know, people that are on commission and stuff like that. And that, that was a very difficult decision for me to make. But at the same time, I was like, there's no way in hell that I'm going to miss a football game. Like, you know, if you're from Alabama and, you know, uh, Friday night football is everything. And they were too precious. Each game was like gold and there was just no way I was going to miss. And I probably got five calls from my business manager trying to talk me out of that. And an email one time when we were on vacation saying, Hey, just want to discuss this with you. This is the money that you're going to lose. This is the dollar amount. Just want to make sure that you know, and so that you can make an informed decision. And I was like, I don't care if I miss $5 million, I'm not missing a football game. So I've always been very defensive about that. And very like, you can go straight to, you know, where if you don't, um, if you're not okay with that, because I'm not asking you to miss your kids, you know, game or whatever. And so I've always been, you know, 
really, really um, concerned about that. Like not, not wanting to miss anything from my kids. So I was able to accomplish it and I'm, I never missed a game. So I'm, I'm curious, your book came across as a letter to parents in some regards and specifically moms. Yeah. You, you uh, wrote, I don't know, midway through or so that you're telling your agent, you've already had some profound success. You're proving yourself and you share the great news and it is awesome news. You're expecting, you're expecting yeah. a little guy named Avery to show up in your world. And then you, you wrote his response and it just blew me away. Yeah. It was my manager at the time. And I, I knew that, you know, obviously if you're a female and you're an actor or a singer or a model or in any line of business um, where people depend on you, announcing that you're pregnant is always going to be met with some sense of like, oh, oh, well, I mean, congratulations, but crap. Um, but he just said, oh, F, you know, like to me on the phone. And I was so devastated. And you know, that's traumatizing. That is absolutely traumatizing, which is why I think I became so defensive about like not missing any football games, you know, because from the minute I <clears throat> announced that I was pregnant, um, I got pushback. And so I fired him the next day. Proudly, I, I did that. Uh, my sisters and brothers who are listening right now just turned the radio up even louder and now we're applauding. But it, <laughs> I think having a moral ground to stand on is wildly underrated. Like knowing what you'll say yes to and what you'll say no to and who you'll say yes to and who you'll say no to. So my, my question for all of us who are trying to manage families, a whole lot of our listeners, Sarah, are parents. We have a lot of female listeners who are tuning in trying to figure out how do I manage my career? How do I raise these kids? How do I move through a divorce or stay married or figure out my own life? All these things, all these things vying for my attention. What, what encouragement or advice would you have for us trying to do a million things when we barely have time for three? Yeah, you know, um, my, my first response to that is whenever possible, put your kids first. Um, whenever possible, put your family first. And I know that's not always easy to do. I was so blessed and I'm grateful that I had a career where I could take my kids with me, but there are plenty of times where I couldn't and I had to leave them. I'm, in fact, I'm on a job right now. Um, I haven't seen my kids since last Thursday and I'm starting to, you know, really miss them. I'm not used to being away from them. Um, but it's hard. It's hard for, you know, like, Kenny Chesney is one of my good friends in country music. And I always used to joke that, you know, he can do 300 shows a year because he doesn't have kids. And even if he did, he would, you know, probably have a wife to be with them while he's gone. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm not, I'm not some feminist, you know, sitting here saying it's not fair, you know, because we all make our own decisions and God decided that it was going to be women that had kids and that's it. And it's a blessing. I'm, now I'm going to take you back away from the children for a moment, back into the studio. When you are a young recording artist and you you begin writing and singing and, and then putting it to music, the, the song Born to Fly, do you know right away, like, gosh, I think this thing is golden? Um, well, with Born to Fly, you know, I wrote that song with Marcus Hummond and Daryl Scott, and it was right after Avery was born. That was the first writing session that I had. Um, 
after, you know, coming out of the um, maternity leave. And so they came over, we just started talking about my life. And I said, you know, I grew up on a farm in Missouri, blah, blah, blah. And they, we just decided, let's just write about that. Let's write about your life. Let's kind of tell people in a song um, what your life is like and who you are. And so we wrote Born to Fly. Oddly enough, though, we, we wrote Born to Fly with like a train beat, like a bluegrass song. Yeah. And these are the little things where I'm like, you know, that was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit. Anytime I have an idea or some real strong like nudge, um, I know it's the Holy Spirit, but I just thought, you know, something about Born to Fly needs to change. So I changed the entire way that, that the, the rhythm was and the beat and the drums. And so I changed it to make it like real funky, like it is. And that's how the song became what it was. That's what made it be our first single and, um, you know, really take me to the next level. I was introduced to that not on radio at first, but through I don't know, whatever the music channel was at the time on uh, for videos. Yeah. You just had it, it's a great video. So I'm, I'm curious, what part back in 2000 when that song came out did video play in songs going big or or maybe not? Um, you know, the head of RCA Records, Joe Galante, he and I always argued because he did not think videos made any difference in in record sales. But I was like, well, it may not make a difference in record sales, but it's important for people to see you, to see the artist and make that connection. Like, oh, that's what she looks like. Right. Um, and so I convinced him to let me make an awesome video for Born to Fly, give me a big budget. And I just thought, you know, it'd be fun to make it sort of like Wizard of Oz because I'm from Missouri, which is right next to Kansas. And it's kind of that story, you know, I've been... I've been talking to the scarecrow of an Allen's farm and there's no place like home, but I also know that I was born to become a famous singer and there's no stopping me. I'm going to, I'm going to leave home, going to go to Oz. And so that was where the idea blossomed and he, Peter Zavadil directed that. He did an amazing job and we won video of the year. You can tell your former boss that I, I think videos do and did play a significant part in sales and promotion and branding and, and getting the word out there. So it-, it Well, you it, know, he, he is a dear friend of mine and was always an amazing mentor. And, and it's Joe Galante. He actually, um, there's a quote from him on the back of my book. That's so nice, but he was wrong twice. He did not like Suds in the Bucket and did not want me to record it. <laughs> and I insisted that again, that was the Holy Spirit, you know, because who knew that, that a song like that would be as big as it was. For the, the folks who don't know Suds in a Bucket, why don't you explain the idea behind that song? Suds in the Bucket is just this um, funny, it's a, it's a humorous song, but it's about a common tale that happens all over the world, but this 18 year old girl falls in love with a bad boy and he drives a pickup truck and 
um, without her parents' permission, she runs off with him and gets hitched in Vegas. It's a funny story, but it's something that especially middle America can relate to, kind of that visual. Uh, another visual I think we can all relate to. You, you talked about the song you wrote when you brought Avery home from the hospital. You wrote another one when you're finally going to let him out of the home. It's called Letting You Go. Being a dad these days, it's just- I'm gonna cry, just I be mean, ready. I mean, it's so clear to me <laughs> how limited this time is. And you used to almost wish the days away, like, oh, it's, they're driving me crazy. You know, go away, children. And now that my oldest is in high school and my baby girl is the same age you were when you hit, were hit by that car, I just realized, man, I, I don't have them much longer. I gotta get ready to let them go. And so you wrote a beautiful song, beautiful song. So would you talk about that song? Talk about the lyrics. I'll try. Um, so I wrote that song with Victoria Banks and Emily Shackleton, um, who were, who were both moms as well. And so we were just, you know, half the time, a, a great song will just come out of you talking with your co-writers about, Hey, what's been going on? You know, what's happening? Um, I was telling them that, that Avery's a junior in high school, you know, just how I was shocked. Like, I'm sure you're shocked that your son is a senior and, um, we start, I'm going to cry, <laughs> but we cried. We cried so hard when we wrote this song, all three of us and all three of us had kids different ages, but the part where we talk about, you know, um, I, I wish I could set the clock on fire. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you do, you go through all these emotions of like, I'm mad that time is going by so fast and I'm sad. <sighs> I'm so glad Sarah's on a book tour she's on a music tour she's on a new project she's working her tail off she's away from her kids and we're just having a little of a reclaimed moment okay this topic is impossible to talk about without crying however I will tell you to encourage people who are you know in this boat and their oldest child is is about to graduate from high school um, you have this feeling that your kids are going to go, like when they move out, they're going to go and that's the end of it. But I see Avery every day. You know, we all live in Nashville. Um, he plays guitar for me on the road. And so it, it's, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be, right. but the song itself will break your heart. Well, and for me, it inspires me to pay attention. So yeah, Absolutely. it breaks my heart. But it, for me, Sarah, it's a wake up call. Like quit wishing away these days and these tasks and these chores and these carpool lines. 
So I'm, I'm enjoying, you, you really woke me up to that fact. So I appreciate that. I'm going to go through a little bit of your brag sheet. None of them related specifically to music. 2006, Dancing with the Stars. Man, I've, I've heard that this is a workout. Like it's like the hardest job you'll ever have is doing that. So what, what was your experience like Dancing with the Stars? Oh my gosh. It's just, you know, so typical of my life. I mean, I, I attract drama and chaos all the time. Um, so I had three kids. I was the only mom on that season. So I was competing against everybody who had 12 hours every day to rehearse. I only wanted to rehearse for three hours because I wanted to be back with my kids. Um, and it's so much harder than it looks. My partner was Tony Davalani. He was the perfect partner for me though. And we're still great friends to this day, but it was one of the most challenging and terrifying yet rewarding and fun experiences I've ever had. But of course, I decide to, you know, go through a divorce while I'm on Dancing with the Stars. Well, I didn't decide to, I was forced to. Right. Um, and I had to quit early, but I, I really do think I would have won. I think we were getting a lot of votes because the judges were always kind of mean to me. So my fan base like kept rallying around me um, but I made it, I think, five weeks. Yeah, you made it f five weeks longer than O'Leary would have made it. And I enjoyed dancing. <laughs> but uh, listen, I'm not going to be able to do the back tumbles that you were doing on stage. I was <laughs> impressed by that. The following year, you perform at the Iron Bowl. Uh, for the uninitiated, those who somehow live outside of the state of Alabama, uh, what is the Iron Bowl? Oh, it's the... Um the game between Alabama and Auburn, and it's the biggest rivalry, I think, of any two colleges in America. Um, and we were playing in Alabama that year, and it was right after Jay and I got married, and they asked me to sing the national anthem. I was more nervous than I've ever been in my life because, you know, Jay is like a god down there because he won the national championship. Um, I didn't want, you know, I, I wanted to be so perfect. And uh, it turned out great. Uh, War Eagle or uh, Roll Tide? Oh, Roll Tide. Jay played for Alabama. I, know, I knew that. I didn't know if his spouse came alongside of him, though. I know sometimes a house divided cannot stand, but uh, I didn't know if... Uh, <laughs> well, I, there's no way I would ever root for Auburn because I have no ties to Auburn. So, you know, and I remember Audrey, my youngest, saying, you know, because she was only three when we got married, um, saying, you know, I, I used to feel like Auburn people were actually really evil people because that's how much people talk about that rivalry. You know, and I know we're saying this kind of tongue in cheek. When we call someone else the other, whether it's Alabama and Auburn, it's very easy to view, view them as evil. And I think one of the things we are at profound risk of doing as a country right now is calling a large group of people, whoever that people is, whichever side of the aisle you want to hang out on, those people. And when you can refer to them as them, those, you can also view them as less than. You know, so I know we're talking about a football rivalry and we're having some fun with it. Yeah. But man, in Alabama, it's no joke. And I would say as a nation, it's no joke. When you start looking down at another group of people, oh, we are at risk of crumbling ourselves. Yeah, I mean, um, I've never seen, obviously no one has seen America um, be this way. I mean, I can only imagine that it's never been this divided except for during the civil war. And it's, it's scary. You know, I base, I judge people based on their behavior, on their actions, on their character. 
whether or not they're um, honest. And I think that's how we should do it. You should look at each individual person, each individual situation and judge it for that, for what it is and don't broad stroke, you know, this big, that's a part of that other group, you know, like you said. Um, I do believe in this country, we, we rush to judgment way too soon before we know the facts, before we know the details. Um, it always amazes me, you know, when I listen to a podcast about true crime and I, I hear how, you know, this is actually the truth, the true story behind so-and-so. And there were so many details that we didn't know because the press loves to sensationalize everything. Yes. And um, so, you know, I'm not really proud of, of how we've behaved as a nation this year. And um, I hope and pray that we can all calm down and we can all love each other. We don't have to agree, but we, don't, we also don't have to hate each other for our disagreements. Correct. In, in part, your book talks about reconciliation and, and learning through tragedy. And, and so I'm just curious, why, why did you write the book, Born to Fly? Well, I was approached by the publisher about four years ago um, to see if I'd be interested in writing a book. And they were sort of open to anything that I wanted to write about. At first, I thought I would just only do the advice part, like, you know, advice on parenting, advice on fashion, advice on life. Um, but in order to do that, I had to start talking about my backstory and saying, talking about where I come from and how I've developed these opinions over the years. Um, I have no tolerance for laziness. I have no tolerance for, you know, lack of common sense. And I have no tolerance for, you know, people who aren't honest and no tolerance for hypocrisy. And in order to talk about those things, I had to explain myself. And so then it just kept on turning more and more into a memoir. And, you know, I, I decided to tell stories that I thought would be very impactful. And I'm sure that, you know, in 10 years, I'll write another memoir and talk about what's happened in the last 10 years and, and go a little bit more in depth about some things in my life. I didn't want to embarrass my kids. So I didn't, yeah, I noticed that. I didn't do a complete tell all, but this book is so fascinating, I think, because it gives people a behind the scenes look into the music industry and what it's really like, you know, to be on, on a bus and on tour and raising children on a bus, what it's really like dealing with the record label, what's really like trying to get your records played on the radio. Um, you know, those are some of the darkest moments of my life, like dealing with country radio, um, you know, and, and then I think, you know, the, the underlying theme to this book is resilience. We, we're skimming the surface of some of the things you've endured as a woman. What advice would you have for the rest of us, rather than being personal and saying what you've done, what advice would you have for the rest of us who require an awful lot of resilience in these days and in all days to step forward resiliently? What can we do to become more resilient? You know, first and foremost, I would advise anyone to, you know, to find God and to find Jesus. And I don't, I don't know how I personally could have hope without my relationship with God and my faith. Um, but secondly, I would encourage people to, like I said, 
not tolerate, for lack of a better term, any BS. You know, stand up for what you believe and, but I don't know, try to show, try to show love and in everything that you do. And, you know, it's very cliche, but really we need to start loving others over ourselves and loving our neighbors. And like I said, it's, this is a weird time. I mean, it's, it's scary. It's not fun. Um, it feels like we're, you know, it feels like a different country. Like we're not free to, you know, speak how we want. We're not free to do things that we used to be able to do. Um, and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I mean, I'm, you know, I live in a free country and I believe in personal choice. Um, and so I guess, you know, resilience is just don't give up. Don't let this, you know, take you down. Um, you can have a bad day, but you got to get back on your feet and keep trying. When I write, Sarah, and this will be my, one of my final questions before what we call the Live Inspired Seven. But when, when I write a book, I always imagine my children reading it, which yeah. means when I write a book, I, I write it specifically for Jack or Patrick or Henry or Grace. I hope a whole lot more people will read it and, and grow because of it. But I'm writing for my four babies and I'm writing specifically thinking, gosh, what do I want to say to them when I'm no longer here to say it to them? Yeah. So for me, it's like really grounding and inspirational and aspirational. When you think about your three, and now Jay, you got seven together. When you think about your children, what do you hope that they might get from your book? Several things. From a selfish point of view, I hope that they understand how hard I worked for them um, to provide for them and give them a great life. And I hope they can kind of see that, oh, we were, we were so little, we had no idea how she was struggling to do everything that she was doing and make sure that we were never away from her. So personally, I hope not, not that I want them to say, you know, thank you, mom. I want them to feel loved by realizing that. And I know that they already do feel loved. I want them to just really understand even more so how, how deep my love is for them. Um, and I also want them to, you know, be proud of, of what we've accomplished as a family together. And, you know, we're, we're thick as thieves. We're so close. Um, and that they too can accomplish anything that they set their minds to. And that, that also sounds very cliche, but you know, they really, really can. And that I'm always going to be here for them. Very cool to think that the daughter of a fairly impoverished tobacco farmer has indeed learned to fly. And uh, man, you're soaring still. So we, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. The very first one, in addition to the book Born to Fly, what's the best book or maybe the most impactful book that you've ever read? Um, East of Eden. Talk about East of Eden, why? I don't know. I mean, it is so good. So I, I've read it twice and now I just finished listening to it on Audible. Um, I just think that, gosh, I just, just lost his name. Steinbeck, um, was brilliant and probably very, uh, you know, struggled himself a lot internally. Um, but this book has so many life lessons in it and it really 
um, is kind of prophetic because it talks about how the world is changing and, you know, um, things are going much more, you know, mass production, mass, you know, like feeding McDonald's and Walmart to the world instead of, you know, the little mom and pop restaurant in your downtown square. So um, I highly recommend East of Eden. Hmm. It's a long book though. Yeah, we'll need some time for it, but I'm ready. So what, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in central Missouri that you wish you exhibited as brightly today? Oh, wow. Well, I've always been an optimist. I was born an optimist. I've always wanted to just smile and brighten the room and make people happy. <clears throat> and sometimes um, I feel like to, today, especially right now in 2020, I'm not able to pull that optimism out as often. And I really want to get that back. Um, I really want to feel like, you know, we do have hope, things are going to get better. And that's what I would work on, I think, is, is being a little bit more optimistic, like I've always been. Sarah, if your home caught fire, Jay and the kids and the animals, everybody's out safe, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing, one item, what's that one item that you come racing back outside with? Um, it would definitely be my cell phone because <laughs> I, my world would shut down if I didn't have my cell phone. Like how, how could I call my mom and say our house just burned down? <laughs> You're pragmatic. I, I didn't know what it would be. I was not thinking it, it would be a cell phone. I thought a Dove Award or a Platinum album or some journal from the past. No, because my cell phone is my connection to my family. And so I would want to call my mom, uh, you know, other than my kids and my husband and our, our pets, we have two dogs and a cat. There's nothing worth going back in for because that's all that, that's all that I need. Sarah, if you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a nice long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Right next to? Okay, this is going to make me cry again, but it would definitely be my granny. I knew it. My granny. Like, your granny sounds like a typical, awesome Missouri granny, but talk, talk uh, about granny. She was just in this. My goal is to be this for my grandchildren and I will do it come hell or high water. I don't care if they live in another state or what. I mean, I will be this for my grandchildren. She was the most loving person in my life. Um, and I say that even though, my mom was very loving, but I still place granny above her in the sense that granny focused on me and we've come from a huge family. So she has so many grandchildren, but I was the oldest girl and granny and I had a spiritual connection. She cooked, she, she coddled us. Um, she doted on us. She waited on us hand and foot. She made us whatever we wanted, short order cook. Um, it was just absolute heaven being with her and it was so comforting. And that is what inspired me to raise my children the way that I've raised them. And I dote on them. I coddle them. I make them comfy. I'll put a blanket in the dryer to heat it up and bring it in and throw it on them just so they're cozy and warm. There's nothing I wouldn't do to make them feel better. And 
that I got that from my granny. So I would give anything if I could sit on a bench and talk to her right now. And, and for our listeners, just because these little ones that Sarah are, is raising are being loved on does not mean they're not being held accountable to exacting standards. You, you <laughs> unpack some of your parenting process in the book and uh, it's love-based, but that does not make it easy. You're not bending over backwards for them. They're, they're going to meet you halfway and they're going to they're gonna live into the fullness of their pr- promise as well. Yeah, I, you know, I've always thought that children should be raised with the utmost respect. So I've never... I've never really yelled at my children. I've never been one of those moms that says, "Uh uh-uh, no, uh uh-uh, don't do that. You know, or there's, you know, you're not going to go here and there and, you know, just with making them feel belittled or that they didn't have a voice with me. And definitely my son, I didn't want to emasculate him, you know, by being overbearing and controlling as a mom. And, but So there are two, I think my children would tell you there are two prominent um, aspects to my parenting style and it's love and discipline because discipline is love. Mm -hmm. Disciplining your child is love. It's loving them because I want my children to be successful human beings. I want them to find love, to have great friends, you know, have people, a lot of people love them. And that's not going to happen if you spoil your child and don't set boundaries for them and don't discipline them and, you know, keep your word. I mean, I told Avery one time in third grade, I said, if you do that again, I'm going to make you shave your hair. (laughs) And I I think I write about that in the book. Um, But I had to follow through. I had to. And I cried. The hairstylist cried. He cried. It was, I mean, it was awful. And I still like have nightmares about that to this day, but he needed to know that that was a pivotal moment in his life. Right. He really never disobeyed me again after that because he knew I was serious. You know what? Uh, you and my mom need to party sometime because I think you two were raised by the same parents at, at some point. I mean, the way you, uh, Oh, that's so cool. When they say something, you better do it. It's said with love. It's said for your best benefit. But if you choose to go in, a, in the wrong direction, John or Sarah or kids, Ooh, there's going to be blowback. There's going to be consequence. Yeah. There's very yeah, little of that in this world today, parenting at that level. I know. I have no tolerance for, for no common sense. You know, I don't, I don't like people who don't look at the world with common sense and they, they pretend that something is not what it is. You know what I'm saying? And so with my kids, they know that I just absolutely adore them. They're my favorite human beings in the world. I would do anything for them, but none of them would ever disrespect me. They would never um, come at me with a disrespectful tone. And, you know, my daughter, Audrey, my 15 year old, she's the one that challenges me the most. Um, But she's growing up in a generation of, you know, TikTokers and um, where there isn't respect for parents. I, I hate it when TV shows show like teenage kids, you know, talking down to their parents and their parents just taking it and just shrugging yeah. their shoulders. Well, she's a teenager. That's what she, no, it's, it has to be mutual respect both ways. Hmm. Three more questions for Sarah Evans. What's the best advice you've ever received? 
You know, it's probably from my mom in, and I, I don't have like a specific sentence, but she was the best example to me to work hard and not let things go, be a perfectionist, you know, cook for your family, make that extra effort to, you know, make your life great and make your home great. Um, so I don't know if that qualifies as advice, but yeah. What advice would you give your 20 year old self, this little Missouri lady who just moved down to Nashville? What advice would you give yourself? I would say be more careful in, um, be more careful with your heart and protect your heart a little more. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, I have daddy issues. So you know, my parents divorced when I was 12. My dad, you know, basically wasn't in our lives after that. And that was one of the most, or if not the most painful thing I've ever been through. Um, feeling abandoned, feeling like, why am I not good enough? Why doesn't he want a relationship with me? Um, what is it about me? And I don't understand how other women have close relationships with their dads. So that caused me to give my heart away very easily to men that I shouldn't give my heart away to. And also it, it caused me not to ask for what I want. And my kids always tell me, you know, mom, you're too nice. You're, you're such a pushover. Um, you don't stand up for yourself enough. You don't stand up for in, you know, in, in my personal life, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty good at it in my career, but not in my personal life. So my 20 year old self, I would say, um, guard your heart. And then I would also say, when you decide to have a baby in, just enjoy it and don't worry about losing the baby weight or anything like that. Just enjoy it. I think a lot of our listeners need that reminder right now if they're in that stage in their own life. So the final question for Sarah Evans, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Sarah Evans, how would you like your one sentence to read? Oh my gosh, that is so hard. There is nothing greater in the world and nothing more true than the love a mother has for her children. Sarah Evans, you certainly modeled that there is nothing more true in the world than the love that a mother has for her children than you did in your own life for yours. And I want to thank you for teaching the rest of us that we, not only you, but all of us were born to fly. So, uh, yeah, friends, that is Sarah Evans. She's the author of the newly released book, Born to Fly. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless, logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture focused on safety, education, community service, wellness, and inclusion, all using their unique strategic process to achieve results on purpose, lovingly called the Keeley Way. Keeley Companies is beyond proud to sponsor the Live Inspired podcast and aligns with a vision of making the world a better place.